Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Hello, this is Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. I am pleased to welcome you to this American Cinematographer podcast. Danish writer and director Nicholas Winding Refn made his feature debut in 1996 with the gritty, ultra-realistic crime film Pusher. That film garnered international acclaim for him and cinematographer Morten Soberg, who would go on to work together on two Pusher sequels, as well as the less well-known but equally compelling Bleeder. Their latest collaboration, Valhalla Rising, takes them from the mean streets of contemporary Copenhagen to the mist-shrouded landscapes of Scotland circa 1000 AD. Pusher star Mads Mikkelsen plays One-Eye, a disfigured mute gladiator who escapes enslavement with a young boy who aids and speaks for him. They end up hitching a ride with a band of Christian warriors in search of the Holy Land, taking a journey that becomes more and more precarious and mysterious as it progresses. Refn and Soberg take this premise and use it as the basis for a mythic film that is lyrical and violent in equal measures. With minimal dialogue and plot, Valhalla Rising relies on visual and oral textures to convey emotion and meaning. Its vivid cinematic portrayal of nature earns comparison with the best of Werner Herzog and Terence Malick, and the purity of its potent, stripped-down images recalls the classics of the silent era. Yet ultimately, Valhalla Rising is no homage or pastiche but a completely original combination of tone poem and action movie that uses the latest digital technology to portray a pre-technological age. I'll be talking with the director about the film here at the ASC Clubhouse, and a little later on, director of photography Morten Soberg will join me via phone from Europe. So let's start by talking about the genesis of the movie. I remember reading about it quite a while ago. So uh, when did you first decide you wanted to do a movie on this subject? The first time I kind of the idea to make this film came into my mind in a very strange way was in a car when I was around 16. Um, I was uh, traveling somewhere with my stepfather and we were listening to a discovery program. And the program was about a ruined stone, which means a stone with a Viking writing on it that was discovered in Delaware, Washington in the 1930s on a farmer's field. That was a big puzzlement because most of the world, I guess at that time, did not think that the Vikings had ever come to America. There were the sagas that had talked about the wine country being America in the north, in, in Scandinavia, of course, but I guess nobody really cared about that for the rest of the world. So it was just dismissed as a hoax. And the ruined stone was basically shipped to various archive art departments around America until much later, I would presume in the 80s or 70s, when it was you know, discovered that the Vikings had been in Newfoundland and the settlements were found and the sagas became more or less saga and more realistically tellings of certain journeys these Vikings had been on. So now that they had known that the Vikings had been there, the puzzlement was still how could a stone with a Viking writing on it end so south compared to Newfoundland in Delaware. And uh, the discovery program that I heard was basically some historians who had kind of played with the idea of kind of, you know, I guess fictionizing what could have happened. And one of the uh, theories was that a ship had, of course, sailed out and had gotten more south. And because the east of east side of America had been more like Florida fertile, uh, many rivers had gone in and out of, from the ocean to the, to, the, to the mainland. And a ship must have sailed into America in certain ways because Newfoundland is quite far in compared to the shore. And then eventually a war had broken out because the, the writing of the stone, and that was kind of what I remember hearing at the end of the program, or at least when my stepfather kind of reminded me of it, was that the writing on the stone is a warning that this is a dangerous place. And I was 16, and I thought, God, that's a great action movie. And, you know, originally when I was younger, I wanted to be a toy designer. I never thought I was going to make you know, a movie out of it. But 
cut to many years later when I kind of had concluded to push a trilogy, that's when I kind of decided that, God, now is the time to make this film. I could get it financed. I knew uh, fairly simple at a, around $3 million budget. And um, now all I needed to do was to write it because when I said Mats Mikkelsen, me, Viking, it was, you know, people had certain ideas of what kind of film would be and it would be, you know, similarly easy to get the money. Um, then the trick was how do I create this story really? And uh, I wrote a synopsis that I looked at sometimes and then I brought in a Norwegian writer called Roy Jacobsen who's a very famous novelist and a war historian to kind of help me shape the story because I did not know anything about Vikings. I've never had an interest in Vikings. I grew up in New York when I was eight so I was 17 so northern heritage is not part of my upbringing you know I didn't have an interest in the sagas I never read the sagas and so there was a whole part of this story that was very alien to me and I I you know I brought in Roy and we would start by trying to come up with some kind of thematic what this film would be about and of course you try very many conventional boring ideas as you go along and eventually after a year where I just didn't feel I was going anywhere. I had this idea in the middle of the night about the film being about a man who was mute and he lived on top of a mountain in a cage and he had no past or present. And I called Roy and I said, this is it, that's the film. And then it became, why is he on top of this mountain? And then what's gonna happen to him? So. That really cemented the movie. And I think ultimately in the end, I've always wanted to make a science fiction film, but I didn't have an interest in science in this particular movie. It was more what I call mental fiction. It's like if you look at the stars at night, if you try to meditate even and lie down and look at the stars, you know, traveling to the stars is technical. You know, we, we, we know we can get there eventually by a ship or some kind of mechanical device. But into the black void that's beyond the stars, to me, is when it gets interesting. And I would presume the journey that these Vikings begin on is like going to Mars for us. It's, it's traveling into the great unknown. And uh, taking place in the 1100s, Christianity was spreading through Europe and Scandinavia very rapidly. And the way it would do that was either with war or it would buy its, you know, buy paganisms or with money basically, or it would fuse. And the, and the pagans and the various beliefs around that time were not missionaries. They never forced their belief on other people. So to them, the ones who didn't buy or down would be living in the outskirts of the fringes of the earth, I would even say. So to make a movie about that was certainly very interesting about in, in, in a period of our history when we were going from being uncivilized to basically civilized is what, when Christianity came. And those kind of ingredients started to become clear mark and it was how do we hit those beats through the story and still have this mute warrior who travels through the four stages of mankind. So you've, as I said, you've done a number of films with this cinematographer, Morton Soberg. So at what point in the process do you start talking to him? Do you, did you tell him about the movie when you were writing it, or do you wait until it's, the script is done? When, when does your collaboration with him begin? Um, well, I always knew it was going to be him just because that I wanted this film to be shot originally, like the Pusher movies, very gritty, handheld in your face. It was like, well, how do you make something that would take place in that time and make it... So basically, how could I make a Pusher movie in year 1100s, you know, a gritty, in-your-face urban drama about moral dilemma. And that's why the first many drafts of the script were not working, because it just wasn't very interesting. It would be interesting for modern-day storytelling, but back then it was just, it was almost too obvious in a way. 
you know, I had this idea about a man, he, he was just, some, there was a woman involved, and then he wants revenge, and he, he kills some people, and then he's on the run, and he gets to America. All these kind of more, you know, I would say again, conventional ways, and not in a bad way, it's just I wasn't interested in that. Um, I always knew it was going to be him because of that, just the technicality of how we did the pusher movies. Um, I didn't. I don't really involve him in the whole develop process. Um, I keep aware of, of his uh, availability, of course. I do bring Matt Mickelson in in an early stage of script when I've written the first draft, and we start to go through it, and then we argue a lot. I mean, we worked on four movies, so we can take it, and and we we know we don't socialize. We have nothing in common. We never see each other. <laughs> except when we work. And uh, usually as I call up and say, let's make a movie. Um, and, and then I went away in the middle of all this development phase and did Bronson. You know, I had to, to write and, and direct that. And then I came back to this film, but Bronson and, and Valor Rising were actually made simultaneously. Meaning that um, I had basically finished the final script of Valhalla Rising before I went in off and did Bronson, which would be, I guess, in the fall. And then I went off and did Bronson over the winter, and I finished shooting Bronson in uh, February, March, in our six-week shoot, and, oh, no, five weeks, sorry. And I'd been casting the both films simultaneously, and then I went straight in from Bronson into preparing Valhalla Rising, while I was editing Bronson, and the day I locked Bronson was the day I started shooting Valhalla Rising. And while I was shooting Valhalla Rising, I would three times, no, two times go to Berlin, where we were doing the post on Bronson, to either work on picture elements with Larry, who was in Asia, Larry Smith, shooting a movie, or sound, and then when I finished um, shooting Valhalla Rising in our nine-week shoot, we would go. I would go to Berlin and mix Bronson. So they were completely mixed into each other, which was good. And by me making Bronson, I took all my ideas out of Valhalla and go and made that and made that movie. So when I had to go and make Valhalla right after, I was completely empty, which was good for that movie because I had worked on it for so long that I was actually getting tired of it. So having to jumpstart it all again really benefited from it. And then when Morton came, we went up to the mountains and found these locations. And uh, originally he turned the movie down because uh, he was set to do a bigger American film that he was waiting to be greenlit. And that was a big shock to me, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I guess that's the way it is. And I had actually been speaking to Manuel Clarique, who was a Danish photographer who's now shooting Las Ventrias' next movie. So, um, you know, I was basically ready to go with him instead. And then Morton came back and said, well, the American film was not going to go anyway if I was still interested. I said, yeah, okay, you've been forgiven. And uh, he came back to, to me when, and Matt's, because all of three, we worked very well together. And so he came to Scotland and we started looking around. And then we very quickly discovered that we, we couldn't move physically. Like we did the Pusher movies, where it was all about like, we shoot everything, we'll shoot all around. It's all about where can the actors move and then we'll move the camera to them. And, and, and Morton's incredible way of moving his body with the camera and doing all the, the things of, that he does so amazingly. He couldn't do that because just the terrain itself was so dangerous and the remoteness of our shootings took sometimes two hours just to get up to the tops of the mountains. So it was like, okay, how do we shoot this film then? And then I had this idea, well, what if it became more like, like images that kind of just were almost episodic, like, like paintings in a way. And that became really the style of the movie that demanded itself that way. So it, it was approached completely opposite the way it actually turned out. Well, something that seemed a little bit different about this movie from your earlier films is a lot of your earlier movies, it seems very clear what the other influences are. And this movie, uh, I'm curious if you and Morton talked about any other films or if you had any other references, because this one seemed almost, it just, it had this feeling of just kind of springing from your guys' 
consciousness in the locations. It didn't necessarily seem to be, but I'm one. But but there are little things. In fact, like I was wondering if the one eye character, if that was any kind of tip of the hat to Kirk Douglas and the Vikings because he has an eye I put out in that movie. I mean, were there any movies that you guys were thinking of, or was it more just purely responding to? The locations and the kind of physical limitations. No, I mean I I am a I am a, a child of, of cinema and and I'm a cineast. So everything I do is references to something I've heard or experienced or seen. And and what we do when we all do it, we all steal. And the ones who claim they don't are obviously lying because you do. You just have to make it your own. Um, and Valhalla Rising is strangely a fusion of my upbringing, of all the films that I have grown up that's become part of me. And there's everything from Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, which was the first VHS that I ever owned. Uh, and that's definitely the one-eye element for there. And there's the whole, you know, the wave of the Leone movies, the countless spaghetti westerns among those. Samurai, the gunfighters, the, you know, the, it's almost like all the mythology films that has the silent hero were kind of infused into that. There's a lot of Tarkovsky Stalker. I mean, I remember seeing Stalker for the first time two weeks before we were supposed to start shooting. I said, God, that's it. I mean, God, can I, can I get that into the film as well? It was like almost like a, a fusion of everything around me was just kind of propelled into making the film. And, but at the same time, it was very tricky because where there are more urban films we did with the Pusher trilogy have certain influences of pop cinema, of pop cinema in the 60s of New York as a reference. This film was a bit more trickier just because of the themes itself and, and, and how what the movie sound even and so forth. So it was quite terrifying the first week because I had no idea if this was going to work or not. Something, something I find very interesting about the way you work, from what I've read, is that you shoot your films, at least this one, chronologically. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, and, and because I'm assuming that that creates some logistical and economic problems. But what do you what do you gain from shooting that way? I mean, is there a lot of does it allow you to shape a lot of the movie as you go without extensive pre planning, without being locked into ideas? Chronologically order comes on my, my obsessiveness in shoot, and I've shot all my films so far in chronologically order, comes from that uh, when I was uh, 18, I went to the Danish Cinematheque and I saw The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And I remember thinking, that's the kind of acting I want in my movies. And I pursued it, meaning that I, tried, I went to the same acting school as John Cassavetes called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I was kicked out after a year, but that's another story. But um, one of the things I did read about Cassavetes when I was in my early 20s was when I was about to make Pusher was that he shot in chronological order. I said, well, I'll, I'll do that. I'm sure, it sounds like a great plan. And then I realized, of course, that what I love about it, why it's important to me are, are a couple of reasons. One of them is mostly I can't discover the film as I go along. I, I hate the idea of being locked down in something when I have not utilized all possibilities. And I feel I've not utilized all possibilities till the day I basically approve the master material at the lab. Not until then I felt I have tried all corners. So it's almost a fear of my own not to have that possibility of letting the movie build up in front of me and progress and I can change it. I can, and oh, I'm also addicted to the notion of it excites me to figure out what exactly is this. And all the films I've done from idea to the product certainly are different. Good or bad is a different discussion, but there's certainly an evolution of many things. For the actors, it's, it's just very good for them to wake up every day and feel, well, where's my character now? And it can also be very terrifying because they cannot rehearse or plan their way out of tricky things. It's actually, they have to seek so deep within themselves to keep it truthful all the way that it becomes a journey for them. There is part of the crew that I have an idea gets more involved because everybody can see the movie just unfold in front of them. And if you're able to encourage and bring them in, it becomes very much a, a team 
seeing what they're doing, you know, becoming the element of it is. Financially, it's of course a situation where I've been lucky to, uh, uh, you know, uh, the films that I've done, I have, you know, also owned, you know, the companies that produces them or part of it or had some kind of hand in actually owning it. So I could demand it. On Bronson, uh, which I didn't produce, uh, but I only wrote and, and directed, the, the Rupert Preston, the producer of the film, uh, distributes my films in the UK. So he kind of knew my process and, and, and saw that, that, you know, as long as we didn't go over budget, you know, whatever we put in there was, was you know, she was very supportive of. So it's a, it's a way that I've been able to work. And, and, and I am now in Hollywood doing my first Hollywood film. And, and, and they're, of course, looking at me with big question marks when I say chronologically order. But I'm trying. I'm trying to sustain it and trying to explain to them the strength of it. Because also, you save time on certain elements. You know, you don't, you don't, you save time on having long discussion with actors about their motivations. You save time in sometimes being, God, we have to go back and redo that. You save time in, in when you shoot because you have to cover yourself so many ways because you have to make sure it works because you don't know yet until you edit it. I mean, there's so many, it saves things on other levels, but to order to do it financially, you have to write it with it in mind, knowing how to do it financially, you know, understandable. Uh, you you shot this movie with The Red, which is, uh, so some people might think shooting a film like this digitally seems a little bit like an unusual choice for a, a period film like this. Were, was there ever any talk of shooting on film, or did you know right from the beginning you wanted to go digital? Well, there's actually two reasons, uh, and this was became very much a discussion between myself and Morton. Um, I guess originally I had thought to shoot it on film, but... Morton said that he would suggest that I shoot it digitally, and he had been doing a lot of films with small video cameras and worked a lot with a digital format. I mean, for the last 10 years, he's done a lot of various things with it. So he was very accustomed to that element of working. And he said, you know, when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, what you see is what you get, you know, and... Uh, and uh, he said, you know, once, and we had these ideas, we were going to do some night scenes that we didn't end up doing because I couldn't insure it. So I had to do day for night because I couldn't afford shooting nights. Also, just the logistics it was just impossible. It was too dangerous we were shooting because once you're out in the remote area of Scotland, it's dark, it's pitch black. And just to light it up would be impossible. So, and at the same time, I had taken out all lighting equipment out of the budget. So <laughs> I had certain things I had to kind of, look into the eye and uh, and Morton and I said okay great well I mean what format then and he suggested the right cam and he we went and did some tests with it and I certainly couldn't tell the difference and uh, I gotta admit looking at it now I mean I'm I'm extremely pleased with working with the digital equipment and I studied I don't see it as much as a substitute for film but more as a different canvas really you know it's a different arena of, of, of working which I find very exciting well, speaking of your canvas, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the use of color in the movie, particularly the lack of color in a lot of it. Uh, a great deal of the film looks like the color has been sort of drained out of the image, aside from red bursts of blood, and then eventually some more vibrant greens come into the palette. What was your philosophy in terms of the color? Because it's such an important part of the storytelling in this movie. One of the things that, you know, it's taking your weakness and becoming your strength. Uh, one of the things that of course was challenging just on a writing level was that when you have a hero who can't talk, how do you tell a story? Because usually every movie is driven from their protagonist's ambition or lack of ambition or you know, model, need of motivation, lack of motivation, and all those kind of things that has a normal character buildup. But here, one eye has no will of his own, but he becomes what people want him to be. And slowly into the film, he realizes that he has a mission, but he doesn't know that until the last 10 minutes of the film. Um, that starts that process. And then we were shooting in, uh, in Scotland in the remoteness, and I didn't want any music, because I didn't want a musical, sc an orchestral score in the sense of a traditional way. 
So how would that sound like? And the film being very silent, then it said, okay, then silence becomes very important. Just like color became very important in the landscape and to tell the story. Uh, but I'm colorblind. And the way that I realized I was colorblind was that when I was 24, or 23, I had met my wife who, uh, and we, we would go on to stay for, together forever, but she was trying on a pair of shoes and she tried on another pair of shoes and they were the same as the first pair. And we just met, so you're really open and polite and let her do her thing. But again, I was like, what the hell is going on? I mean, she kept on saying that shoe and that shoe. It just, just, take, just take one of the shoes, okay? I'll pay right now, let's take one of the shoes. She goes, but can you see the different colors? I said, no, they're, they're both black. She goes, are you colorblind? I was like, no, I'm not colorblind. She goes, but that one is purple, that one's black. Okay. Realizing at 24 that my whole life I had been colorblind to the extent so much that I can't see mid-colors. So everything from then on in my films always very contrasted. And uh, I, so if I can't see the color, it can be the greatest colorist in the world. If I can't see it, I can't understand it. So everything, when we were doing the post of this film in, um, in England, um, in Wales, at, at, a, at, a, at a good post house, um, it was all about contrasting all the images one from the other so I can understand the color scheme. And red, for some reason, always becomes a very favorable element of every film I do, and that how the redness kind of pops up as an important element through the film. Well, in, in this movie especially, you've got those visions that one eye has where he's seeing things and it's just soaked in red. And I was wondering how you achieved that look. Is that something that was done in post, mostly, or? Yeah, I mean, one of the things with us in Scotland was that because we only had Borton and a camera crew of very few people and a flamingo, that was our lighting source. So we shot and then it was all about what can we do in post. And, uh, you know, shooting digitally, especially for that kind of process for this movie, certainly benefited from it, you know. And uh, we were able to tweak and untweak and squeeze and stretch and whatever you call it when you do go through this process. It was all done in post. The, the film's use of slow motion is really interesting, too. Uh, the extremity of it kind of adds to the overall feeling of abstraction that permeates the whole movie. Um, where did you, at one point, did you come up with the idea to use slow motion the way that you do in the film? Was that part of the conception from the beginning, or was that something you thought of as you were shooting? Well, I kind of like extreme things sometimes, and one of the ideas I had right before we went in and knowing that we were shooting digitally was that I wanted to shoot the whole movie in slow motion. Because I thought, God, that would be strange. <laughs> and it was, it just didn't work. <laughs> so the whole movie is actually shot in slow motion. Uh, and then when I started putting it, the film together in the editing room, where Bronson was a very quick editing, it was very quickly thought out, it was very accurate to the, the structure that I made up. Uh, Val Horizon was completely different. You know, the thing with Val Horizon was to figure out what kind of film it was not. And it took a lot longer to put together. And one of the things I really realized, well, if, you know, yes, the film had to be what it is, but it didn't need to be all in slow motion because that would slow the process down. So I had in post to, you know, go back to normal speed in certain, in most of the shots because it just, it didn't benefit the movie. It became too much, it became too aware of its own self and it actually lost, for me, a, would lose a bit of its, you know, strange elements or strange feel. You know, it's almost like the film was divided up in these three layers. The first layer, which was shot in these, in the mountains of Scotland out of Glasgow, uh, were like almost like rocket moon landscape. There was no life, nothing lived there, you know. Then we would have, uh, and that was about four weeks, I think, and then we had one week in a warehouse in Glasgow to shoot the boat sequence. 
which consisted of a boat made out of plastic that was put in some kind of machinery that could make it move so it looks like it was moving within water. And then uh, Morton had came up with this idea to put, uh, together with the line producer, Johnny Anderson, to put out black garbage bags on the floor. And then we had these production assistants running underneath, pushing up the plastic once in a while so it looked like waves in the sea. And then in post, we could then add an additional amount of liquid feel to, um, to the garbage bags. And I very deliberately set out to do that rather than going on the ocean trying to shoot it there because I wanted the journey to feel like space travel. You know, they were caught in this mist that wouldn't lift and it would drive them crazy. And I think that whole idea came from one image I had when I was four or five. And my, my mother and father had a black and white television back in Copenhagen. And I remember seeing somebody, or my father said, see those people, they're sitting in a space rocket. And I think it was some archive or some footage from a space travel. And I just remember this, they were so enclosed and engulfed in this kind of journey. And I thought, that's more interesting to do it like that than to just to go in the ocean, because it kind of goes against the whole notion of the movie that they're traveling into outer space. Um, and then we spent four weeks up north of Scotland, up near Loch Ness in a nature reserve. And then the last two days, we were all the way up on the northwest side, up near the shore of Scotland. Well, this movie, uh, in a lot of ways, it seems like kind of a summing up of a lot of the things you've dealt with before in terms of being another movie about violent men. Actually, that reminds me, I, I wanted to ask you about the use of violence in the movie and in general in your career, because you use violence a lot. And I'm curious what draws you to it. Is it a thematic thing, or do you just like the cinematic uh, properties of violence? Or uh, Because you're such a mild-mannered guy. What, what, makes, what draws you to such violent material? I think that I've begun to understand that I have some kind of Jekyll and Hyde complex. And that I have a lot of violent behavior in me. And Bronson, even though it was about Michael Peterson or Charlie Bronson in England, really was very much a biography or ended up becoming a biography of my own life because my film Bronson is about a transformation from Michael Peterson to Charlie Bronson. Now, I guess I've gone to understand for me that Art is an act of violence. You know, it is there to penetrate you. Because in order to penetrate you, it needs to go past your filters. But once it gets past your filters and penetrates you, it goes into your subconscious or your deeper part of your mind. And then it stays with you for the rest of your life. And it can change everything that you do. That's why art is as powerful a weapon as, as weapons of mass destruction. But where violence in the real world destroys, art inspires. But you can kind of say that the whole notion of creating is a violent format. Now, why does that mean I make violent films? Well, I think that sometimes I make violent images rather than violent films. And, and I, I guess I, I like extreme. You know, I, I certainly cannot say I don't. And, but I sometimes think that people mistake violent films from seeing a movie that they are violated by. And I, 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 I try to work more in the other category. So I don't know why my films are violent, really. I guess it just comes from somewhere. Well, uh, what's next for you? I know you've, I've actually read interviews with you where you've said that you would like to do something totally outside of this, like you'd like to do a romantic comedy or a movie with all women. Or you, what, what do you have uh, on deck next? Well, I'm here in Los Angeles doing a movie called Drive that's based on a James Salis book. 
about a stuntman by day and getaway driver by night. It's and it's it has the um, Ryan Gosling who's playing the lead, and it's a car movie. And I takes place in Los Angeles, and I don't have a license. I can't drive a car, and I've been in three car crashes, so I was very interested in making a car movie. Just I guess because of that. So that's what I'm here to do. Uh, I've started pre-production on my own production right after called Only God Forgives, which is a Western that I'm doing in Bangkok. After that, I uh, will continue on in my own production world with a film featuring all women and a lot of sex, which I haven't really done before, called I Walk With The Dead in Miami. But I guess in between all those things, I would love to do a romantic comedy. I would love to make Wonder Woman. I would love to do anything that, see, I don't want to be caged in. I don't want to be controlled. I will always seek out. When so many people thought I was going to make Valhalla, I went off and did Bronson. Just the sheer idea of, no, you can't have me. You know, you, you can't tell me what to do. And, um, you know, I don't know what's going to come next always. It's strange. Sometimes things change. Uh, I was said to do a film with Harrison Ford where he was going to die at the end, which would have been a great satisfaction to me. But Harrison Ford decided that, that, or at least it didn't really come together afterwards, which was a shame. It was a very beautiful script of The Dying of the Light by Paul Schrader. So, it, you know, you never know in this industry. Um, I guess my, my, my new... You know, after doing Valhalla Rising, I felt it was time for me to try to do an American studio film, just to see what it was like. And coming from a film like Valhalla, which was all I, me, existentialistic extravaganza, to suddenly coming here and doing an American finance distribute studio film was an interesting contrast. Almost I wanted the boundaries I wanted somebody to tell me what I couldn't do. And, uh, and of course, the first thing I had to get used to coming here was the we, and not the I. <laughs> uh, but I guess you have to wait five months to really ask me if I, if I liked it and if I'll ever do it again. But so far, I, I'm, I, I'm very content, and it's a great experience being in, in this city and, and living here for, for six months doing this film. But I, was, I will always have my own thing that I was always prioritized as number one, you know. And then, you know, the world is very big and very strange, and I'll see what comes. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming by to talk with us about Valhalla Rising. Thank you. That was director Nicholas Winding Refn talking about his work on Valhalla Rising, uh, now I'm joined by cinematographer Morton Soborg. Uh, Morton, this, this film is very different from the previous collaborations you did with Nicholas. Uh, what was your initial reaction to the script when he gave it to you? Wow. <laughs> I was very surprised because Nicholas has always said that he hates Viking movies. So I was really uh, surprised that that was what he was going to do. And also, he, he's a guy that likes reality and that things are like he can check out if if with somebody who knows how things are for instance the 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 gangster movies we've been doing he's always had some some more or less real gangsters to 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 tell him if it was right or not so i was very surprised that that he wanted to do a viking movie because it's 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 very hard to find a viking these days <laughs> right and well uh, it, the movie is very it's still very realistic so what kind of conversations did the two of you have in the initial stages about how to make this movie have the same kind of realism and immediacy as your gangster movies I think uh, what, what Nicholas told me was that this is uh, forget everything you've ever seen about historical movies I don't care about that this is uh this is a movie about uh, some some immigrants uh, having a fight with Hell's Angels. Uh-huh. 
so that's how we should uh, that's how we should shoot the movie. We we should think of it as a modern story, basically. We shouldn't. Uh, you never you never deal with anything historical at all. Mm-hmm. So, did you use any other films or paintings or anything like that as as visual references? I mean, they're they're. Um, Two, I mean, it's it's uh, there's a lot of uh, Kurosawa uh-huh. for the because he's the more or less Nicholas and I agree he, he's one of the only guys that really have made historical movies that that work right and and um, of course like in any other of Nicholas's movie it's uh, Stanley Kubrick because it's just his. He, he thinks he's a master. I mean, he, he just loves him. So so we always go back to his movies. Right. Um, and and when you're in the, the planning stage, do you guys do a lot of pre-planning in terms of your compositions? Do you storyboard or shot list, or are you responding more just to what you get on the location no. on the day? Uh, nothing at all. Uh-huh. The most important thing for us is to find uh, the location. Right. And find a place that we really think this is where the scene should play out, because uh, Nicholas he doesn't even do rehearsals, so it's it's basically about just shooting it almost like it was a documentary, and then uh, and and Nicholas always shoots uh, like he he takes the whole scene from the beginning to the end in one take. He never does, very very rarely he is he doing a pickups. Um, so he basically sees it through his little video screen and then he tells me, yeah, yeah, let's try to do something different. Or he says, oh yeah, let's do some more of that, which you just did there. So it's, it's a very, very improvised, um, thing shooting with him. And how did you arrive at the decision to shoot the movie digitally instead of on film? Um, actually the decision, it was uh, Nicholas's decision because he wanted to try to shoot a, a digital movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to as well. I hadn't, I hadn't, yeah, I had done some, some, um, some, some, uh, some movies on, uh, on, um, Sony, uh, high definition, but, but it was like, we wanted to try the red camera basically. Right. <laughs> that was the thing. And then what was your experience like with the red camera? Were you happy with it? Oh yeah, I was. I was very happy. I mean, especially I was uh, surprised how well it picked up uh, the sky. I mean, this this movie is almost everything is shot exterior day, and in Scotland, and it's like the the, the sky is basically eighty to 90% of every single image and I was really a little worried about that because it, it being a digital format and with my no, my previous experience with um, with the digital formats but I was very very happy when I actually got into the grading and saw how much thing we actually could pull out uh, because it wasn't there when we saw the dailies but but, but all these really great looking uh, skies that you see in the movie they they um, they just came out really very very nice so i was very happy with it did you have any technical challenges shooting with that camera any snafus yeah yeah the um the whole thing that's done in the mist was done in a studio and and we had a lot of smoke there and we were there for a week and the camera didn't like that because it's like the cooling system just pulls all the smoke through the the, the in, into the camera, so it was my my assistant told me that it was like almost like oil running from from inside the camera. Mm. So so it it's, it 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 didn't show on the um, actually on the footage, but it showed in the viewfinder that it was like jumping the whole time. So that was a little scary uh-huh. until we found out that it didn't actually um, end up on the final film. And, and how much of the the use of color in the movie, where you're draining colors out of a lot of scenes, and it, it's very it's very striking. Was that a look that you you captured when you were shooting, or did you do a lot of manipulation in post with the color? No, it, it's 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 because the whole movie is shot in Scotland, mm-hmm. and the thing is that uh, we 
the story is that we start out in Scotland, but then we end up in America. Right. And uh, we had to make more or less Scotland look like both America and Scotland. So pretty, pretty quickly we decided that that's something we are going to deal with in, in the post. And um, yeah, actually another movie that came out uh, is uh, Stalker, the Tarkovsky mm-hmm. movie. Where, because uh, Nicholas always said when they come to America and they walk into it, it's going to be the zone. Always like it is in, in Stalker where they go into this strange blue place where they're walking around. Right. So that was another reference we actually used. But we were um, pretty sure quite early on that we had to do a lot of this in, in the post to get Scotland to to look like two different places. And and Nicholas, when we were grading, I mean, his first... He was there the whole time with me when we graded. And um, his first um, comment to the, to the guy grading was, this is a comic book. I mean, it has to be... Don't, don't hold back. You have to give me everything you have in colors and in contrast and in weird stuff. Right. Well, also, at several points in the film, one eye has dreams or visions that are shown in an extremely saturated red. So how did you achieve that yeah. look? That That's a post-production thing completely. It, it, it was nothing because a lot of the dream things, uh, some of the dreams were planned out, but some of the other dreams were just shots that were um, that they found out in the in the editing process that this is going to be a dream, and there wasn't really. I mean, Nicholas is very um, spontaneous when he's working. Either he likes things or he doesn't like it, and then he's very quick at changing his mind. So, no, we're going in this direction. So it's a very fluid and spontaneous um, process working with him. It looked like you were shooting in pretty rugged terrain. So, what what kind of lighting package were you able to have when you were shooting? Uh, nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a poly board, basically. That was the lighting package for the, for all the exterior because it was it was a uh, it was a two hour um, basically drive and hike to get up to the main location for the first month. And so, so we basically carried as little as possible. Um, and and we had this whole, because in Scotland, in particular the place where we choose to, uh, to shoot, it turned out to be the most rainy and the place in Scotland with the worst weather. And we literally had rain, sun, fog every single day. And it just came in like out of nowhere. So we also pretty fast decided that if if we're going to shoot a movie up here, uh, it was like, not very high, but still it was like up in like 2,000 feet. Um, we have to go with the weather. We have to, 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 to see everything that the weather is like as a gift. So if the fog suddenly comes in, well, we're going to shoot this scene in the fog because uh, we had absolutely no control. And did those conditions also motivate your decision to shoot so much of the movie handheld, or is that something you would have done anyway? That's something we always do. Uh-huh. It's like the, all the movies I've done with Nicholas, everything is handheld, and everything is shot on the same lens. This is, everything on this movie is shot on a 16mm. Mm-hmm. And wh- why did you make that decision? It's It's something we've always done it's like i think it's something nicholas has from kubrick that is like uh, especially if you want to use extreme wide angles which we both like it, it seem uh, suddenly if you then change to a na- more narrow lens it's like the world changes it's like the the way you perceive things is changing and it, it's um it doesn't really work for us and uh, nicholas is not really a guy that goes for for, ex- for close-ups so we can easily work with the extreme wide angle for the whole thing. And it goes very, very well with the handheld as well, because it, it, it makes all the, the, the motion less. I mean, there's going to be less shaking of the camera with extreme wide, wide angle. Right. right. 
did what was your experience like after shooting on the red? How involved were you with the the post production workflow? Did it uh, did, did were your experiences as positive there as they were with shooting? I wasn't I wasn't really um, so much uh, in on the on the actual workflow. I, I heard from the producer that it was pretty tough for him, also because we choose to shoot a lot of the stuff uh, uh, in slow motion. Because uh, I found out that you could shoot 50 frames per second, but still shoot it with a with a shutter that's 150, which meant that we could actually um, decide afterwards if we want to use the, the scene in slow motion or we wanted to use it in in normal speed. And in theory, that was a that was a good plan, but they had a really big problem actually syncing up the whole thing afterwards for some strange reason that I never found out but it was something with the actually with the when you're loading it into the Avid and stuff like that so so it was basically to, they had to sit and do all the, the synchronization of the sound uh, manually because the auto sync didn't work with that thing and we shot like maybe more, more than half of the movie is shot in in slow motion just to have the possibility of making it into slow motion when you wanted to um, but other than that I mean the, the actually the grading and everything I mean when they finally had all the stuff in the computer um, it worked out very well but I know that the, the, the girl that was sitting there every single night uh, loading everything um, she, she she was pretty tired because it took a long time. <laughs> so and now that Valhalla Rising is out and done and in the world, what are you uh, working on next? Well, I've just uh, just finished a or just had a premiere in Denmark on a Susan Beer movie, which is a Dan another Danish director I'm working with. She did um, Brothers, right. and she did um, Things We Lost in the Fire which I did with her. Uh, and I'm going to do another movie with her uh, here in the, the autumn. Great. A Danish movie. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for uh, talking with us about Valhalla Rising. Yeah, good. This has been Jim Hempel talking with Morten Soborg and Nicholas Winding Refn about their work on Valhalla Rising. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.